Welcome to What's Your Beef? What's Your Beef is proudly supported by Suncorp Bank, helping local producers through the ups and downs since 1902. Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Australian beef. It's sometimes hard to fathom the range of relationships Australians have with it. For some, it's an income, whether it be contract mustering season in the Territory or in a box in a cold room ready to be sent overseas. For others, it's a choice at the supermarket, what's on special, what they can afford and what they choose to eat. Then there's the emotion, the adoration of a child with a potty calf or a favourite stud cow that's preg-tested empty after not missing a year for the last 15 But at the end of the day, beef is a commodity. In fact, it's worth $2 billion to the Australian export market and someone needs to showcase and market it to the world. Mark Harvey Sutton is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. His career has been varied in that he's worked for the Sheep Meat Council of Australia, now the Sheep Producers Australia and the Cattle Council of Australia as a policy director, as well as the Ag Department and other policy roles. So there's not a lot around the fine print that Mark doesn't know. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Absolute pleasure, Jane. Yeah, well, look, I'm not going to lie, I had a couple of questions straight up that I was going to hit you with, but after a little chat, I realised that we've both grown up in the same area. I was going, I just asked where you where you grew up and we've managed to join a few dots. So let's let's start at the very beginning and, and where did you grow up? I grew up in Charters Towers, Jane, which God's is... God's own uh, country. <laughs> a very prominent beef country as well, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was a great pleasure growing up there, of course. It's a, it's a nice place, Charters Towers. And, well, look, uh, and even if you came back now, it'll still be pretty much exactly the same, which is more refreshing than sometimes we think. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. But uh, I think uh, Charters Towers probably shaped my interest in working in the beef industry. Charters Towers has a number of boarding schools and uh, provides education to a number of the the cattle stations uh, right across northern Australia. So a lot of my I didn't grow up on the land myself. My my parents were school teachers there, but um, a lot of my friends were from uh, remote cattle stations from across the north, and uh, gained a real appreciation uh, and an empathy, I suppose, for the uh, terrific work that the beef industry does and what the what a unique and challenging environment northern Australia can be sometimes. As you mentioned, you know that. Growing up in the land wasn't um, what you were doing. So how did you end up in the beef industry? Well, it's uh, by circumstance, really, in, in some ways. I, um, I studied law at uh, James Cook and had ambitions to be a uh, country lawyer because not many people wanted to go back to the bush to do their legal practice. So I thought that could be a bit of a niche um, that I could fulfil, but I ended up being one of the 50% of law graduates that's never practiced and uh, (laughs) um, was fortunate enough to gain a graduate position at the Department of Agriculture in Canberra. um, So policy then? That's right. So I did did a range of roles there, um, including uh, drought and exceptional circumstances assessments, which was a terrific grounding to understand the production systems right across the country. I was fortunate to to meet farmers all over Australia, not in the best circumstances, sadly, but um, nonetheless, it was a, a terrific opportunity. And uh, I also spent a substantial amount of time there 
working on the red meat industry structure arrangements in, in the policy role. And that's where I became very familiar with the, the peak council structure around the red meat industry, um, the red meat memorandum of understanding and all those sort of things. And um, eventually, uh, after doing a couple of other things in government, I ended up at the cattle council for a couple of years. And from there, I've just... Uh, tried my hand at a few different peak councils around Canberra advocating for farmers. Awesome. Well, look, that was going to be one of my first questions because I guess you touched on it just then with the peak body groups. Um, there are any number of them. So can you just put in the – you just start with the role of the Livestock Exporters Council into context with some of the other industry groups? So Certain, No problem, Jane. So the, the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, ALEC, um, is the, the representative body for exporters themselves. So uh, there's roughly around 30 to 35 exporters in Australia. Uh, we represent their interests, but we're also part of what's called the uh, Red Bear Signatory to the Red Meat Industry MOU. And uh, a number of your listeners would have heard the Red Meat Advisory Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're, the, they're an overarching uh, body. Uh, that captures the other peak bodies that represent the various parts of the supply chain. So within the Red Meat Advisory Council, you have AMIC, which is Australian Meat Industry Council, and that represents processors and butchers. The Lot Feeders Association, uh, which represents lot feeders, obviously. Uh, Sheep Producers and Cattle Council uh, represent the the producer and the cattle council side of things, the the grass-fed. Uh, the Goat Industry Council and, and ALEC. So it's it's quite a um, broad group, but I think it, what, what it does demonstrate is, um, although there will be challenges uh, between sectors overall and in a trade sense and uh, betterment of the industry, uh, there is a forum in which we can work together collectively. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned you, you represent sort of 30 to 35 different exporters, but there's any number of sort of niche uh, markets opening up and a lot of individual producers sort of marketing their own brands overseas. How does that play in with what you're doing, or if at all? We're a little bit different to um, the the box trade. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, the the livestock export industry predominantly services markets where um, they wouldn't necessarily take a lot of um, box product. Um, so, for example, in, in Indonesia, um, there's a range of reasons uh, that that market's developed, but things like refrigeration, infrastructure, religious reasons, but also the fact that they can import cattle um, and add weight to those cattle. So they're going to feedlots in Indonesia, um, and, and there's a, a, a gain that those feedlotters achieve going into that market. So we, we don't necessarily... Uh, dabble in the, the branded beef side of things but mm. that's not to say that uh, Australian livestock uh, aren't renowned and indeed a, a reason that we often do gain our market share is because of the quality of our cattle uh, we're perceived as very safe clean green disease free all the things that um, are attributes for the broader beef industry we encapsulate that as well. Yeah, well, beef is, is considered the country's largest value-added manufacturing industry. So how much room is there to build on that? Oh, tremendous amount. Um, and, and I think what the, the key thing is, because uh, often the debate will um, come up where uh, why are we live, exporting livestock? We shouldn't be processing them here. It costs jobs. But the, 
the fact of the matter is we service different markets. So across both uh, sheep and cattle, you can roughly equate about 10% of the industries being live, live exported. There's a range of reasons for that. Processing capacity in Northern Australia obviously um, is not high. Um, and, you know, the types of cattle uh, and the, the, the specifications that processors seek might not necessarily uh, be the same for live, cattle destined for the live export. So um, the, the two industries are actually very complementary. Um, but I think we do have to look at the industry as a whole. And this is where that Red Meat Advisory Council structure I was talking about before comes into play, because as you quite rightly point out, as a red meat sector, we're the largest manufacturing industry in Australia now. And that that's really important for people to understand because it, it shows that we're a dynamic industry, we create jobs, um, and we are an industry for growth because one of the things that we always try and do is grow our markets. Yeah, well, you've touched on a couple of things that I'll come back around and, and pick up again. But, you know, live export has become such an emotional issue for many Australians, um, obviously outside the industry, probably more so, and inside for various reasons. But how has the council had to change your considerations of the industry over the last number of years since it became a pet subject of the animal rights movement? The first thing I need to say there is... I can understand why it's an emotional issue. And if you look at some of the events that the industry has experienced over time, uh, it's fair to say that they weren't good enough. The industry had to reform. It had to had to uh, become better at what it does. And uh, following the uh, live export ban to Indonesia in 2011, uh, a system called SCAS, which is the Expo- Export Supply Chain Assurance, which is an Australian government regulatory regime, came into place. And... What that actually does is attribute responsibility to the exporter right up to the point of slaughter. And the purpose of that was to give assurance around animal welfare. As an industry, we've actually been trying to enhance that uh, through a program called ALGA, which is a Livestock Global Assurance Program. So what we're looking to do is actually take that regulation uh, and enhance it with quality assurance systems, because one of the things that we always have to be focused on is animal welfare. And I'm not saying that that hasn't been a focus before. Um, and, and indeed, you know, you talk to you talk to producers, you talk to exporters, no one wants to see poor animal welfare practices. But it's very important that we work hard to ensure that the frameworks and the systems are in place to make sure that that's assured. Yeah. And, you know, we have now um, some of the highest animal welfare standards in the world and, you know, have done for certainly sometimes. So why is it so hard to make the average consumer aware of them and aware of, of how much blood, sweat, tears and money goes in into making sure that that's kept at that standard? Yeah, and that's a that's a question that the industry's grappled with. And, I, and, and I, dare I say it, I don't think it's a question that's just unique to the live export industry oh, as no. well because one of the things that we always have to consider is how do we actually tell our stories better. Um, I'm a big proponent of saying, well, you know, often people will say, view people that are against the trade as the enemy. I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think what we have to do is understand why. Mm. Uh, people are always entitled to their opinion. Um, but what that, that lesson that that needs to teach us is we need to be open. We need to be in a position where we can actually explain to uh, those people what we do. They're still welcome to uh, dislike the trade, but it's very important that they come to that conclusion from an informed perspective. And I think that's 
one of the things we have to work so hard on as a as an entire sector, but also as a live export industry, we have to put people in the position to be informed. And uh, that's something we've worked on uh, over the last few years. And um, I think we're making some headway. Um, and there's still plenty to do because at the end of the day, there is a, a disparity um, in terms of people's understanding of agriculture uh, more broadly. And I think uh, we need to play a role and support the broader agriculture sector as well in terms of bridging that gap. Yeah, absolutely. And I think quite a lot um, of the groups that we probably need to get better stories out or certainly stories um, out in the foreground are so savvy with social media and marketing and that sort of thing. And really, um, Australian beef has such an amazing amount of stories to tell. It's It amazes me sometimes that we aren't more um, proactive in that space. Oh, exactly. And, you know, one of the stories that we... we, we always try to put forward is the fact that we do actually make animal welfare enhancements in, in the markets. We are the only country in the world uh, that has animal welfare assurances in, in market where we send our livestock. Over 100 countries globally actually export livestock. So we're not the only ones and they come from across the world, the, the US, South America, Europe, they all live export, but we are the only ones that have animal welfare assurance programs. and. What that comes with it is things like training in market for people uh, so they can understand um, animal welfare best practice. And there was a really great example recently, Jane, where um, Meat and Livestock Australia in partnership with the live export industry has actually been working with the Vietnamese government to adopt uh, domestic animal welfare laws that are of an Australian standard or what we would term of an Australian standard. So. That's a huge achievement when you think you're actually changing the animal welfare laws in a country such as Vietnam. And we, we've got to really get on, onto the job of actually pointing out to stories like that and saying, see, we are making a difference because I, I have a firm belief we are and that's why I do this job. Well, even within the industry itself, that would I, I hadn't heard that and I'm, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone there. So, you know, that's a, a lot of uh, understanding of even how MLA works and spends money as well. Exactly, exactly right. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge achievement. So uh, we'd like to do things like that uh, wherever we can. Yeah. So now, obviously, live export is a very important part of the industry, especially for the northern producers. And I think, you know, that side of things is fairly well understood. But when um, the ban was placed on it in 2011, we saw exactly how complex the marketing chain is. So can you highlight, like you've touched on a little bit, but just bring it all back together and highlight how important it is to our customers and overseas markets because, you know, as you just said, there's work at play with other governments adopting sort of our welfare and management practices and standards, but it is so such a complex chain once they actually leave Australia too, isn't it? No, that's exactly right, Jane. We, with that 2011 incident, although it predates my time in this position, it's fair to say that the ramifications felt right across uh, Northern Australia in particular, but as well as in Indonesia. Um, obviously, the, the uh, federal court case recently that uh, said that decision was wrong was very important. Uh, but what I don't want to lose in the midst of that was that it was, were things that needed to be changed in Indonesia. That footage that came through at that time was awful. 
Um, and it was a real signal that the industry needed to change. The industry has, um, but we should never forget that. It was, a, it, was a, it was a point that led to reform for our industry. Um, but to your question uh, about the complexities, obviously you have the supply chain in Australia, uh, which many of your listeners would be uh, very familiar with. But once uh, cattle are sourced and they're, they're on their way to the port, they go to what's called a, um, a registered premises, which is where the cattle are prepared for export. Uh, they'll be loaded, um, shipped, and while they're shipped, they uh, they still come under Australian regulation because there's a system called the Australian Standards for the Export of Livestock, and that that governs welfare um, and provides welfare assurances on the vessel. Uh, once they're unloaded in country, they'll be transported to a uh, feedlot, um, and depending on how the the businesses of the feedlot are structured, they'll uh, in Indonesia they'll they'll feed them for a period of time. Uh, in a market like Vietnam, which is predominantly a slaughter market, they'll, uh, they won't hold the cattle for long. They'll go straight for processing. Um, but after the feedlot, they're then transported to processing facilities. And they can range those processing facilities, but they all have to be SCAS approved. So to have, um, I guess, uh, frameworks in place that give that animal welfare assurance um, and to ensure that the slaughter is humane. Uh, and, and once, uh, depending on, uh, I mean, this is a very general, big generalisation here, but often after they're slaughtered, uh, particularly in Indonesia, they'll they'll go to a wet market. So they, they slaughter during the night, uh, often around midnight to the early hours of the morning, and uh, that beef is consumed um, that day yeah. uh, where, where people come and buy their, their meat for the day. Yeah, and I guess that that really came to the fore during that whole ban period too, that the average Australian consumer probably didn't take into consideration. No, that's right. And what the COVID period has taught us, Jane, is that countries have had to really focus on their food security. And, you know, there's, there is a discussion. Often we think of Australia as an agricultural exporter that focuses on the, the premium, the high end. I often think we understate our role as a provider of food security, um, because particularly in the live export industry, that, it's a fairly significant responsibility we bear uh, because a lot of the countries that we export to, they're relying us for the provision of protein. Um, and, and it's a significant contribution we make to their food security. So when you have circumstances where that can no longer happen, you're actually jeopardizing a food, their food security. Um, and it's a really important point to make. Um, and, you know, I, I just think the COVID period, it's been quite fascinating because in some circumstances or for periods of time, livestock demand increased because the ability to transport children frozen meat was limited by the air freight capacity with, the, um, you know, flights obviously dropping off uh, during the COVID period. So it's actually quite fascinating, but I think it's really underpinned that responsibility that we have. Well, I guess, and the COVID period would have been a sort of logistics nightmare, just organising ships and staff and um, all of the international and national regulations around that too. Oh, absolutely. And uh, uh, a lot of work was put in over that period when, uh, as, as the rest of the country was doing, we were grappling with what happens next. But we were uh, very fortunate, but also quite rightly classified as an essential service um, uh, both under the uh, ag agriculture guys and 
um, also the uh, logistics guys. So that enabled us to continue operating, which is incredibly important. Uh, one of the challenges that the industry's had is the movement of people. Um, so, for instance, every every uh, livestock voyage is required to have Australian accredited stockhands on board. Uh, so they would have to uh, move domestically to to get to the vessel. Um, if you've got longer haul voyages, they, they would have to have a vet as well. And uh, one of the really interesting things was, if you think about it, usually what would happen is once that voyage was complete and the livestock discharged, those vets or Australian staff would jump on a plane and fly back. But they couldn't do that anymore. So they were actually coming back on the boat. So there's actually been huge personal sacrifice that livestock export industry staff have, have made to enable it to continue. And I think it's a real testament to the industry about just how resilient it has been. Does live export provide employment opportunities domestically as it does in market? Yeah, industry figures um, estimate that we employ around 10,000 full-time equivalents um, in Australia, uh, which is a significant amount. And that ranges right through from the uh, registered premises, uh, port workers, uh, livestock transporters that are, you know, predominantly live export focused. So it's a huge, huge number of employees and uh, a significant contributor to the economy, particularly regional and rural economies. So you've just mentioned any number of ways that ALIC has had to sort of pivot, I guess, for want of a better word, um, through, you know, changes and to regulations and that sort of thing. So who do you work with in terms of setting policy and regulation, considering, you know, you have had some dramatic changes within the industry in the last 10 years? Yeah, and, and it's a multifaceted thing, um, both uh, developing policy for the industry, but also implementing it and advocating it. So in terms of our development policy process, we would agree policy with our members. Um, we'd work closely with the, the other peak councils I mentioned earlier, your, your producer groups, and on occasion, the processing groups as well. Um, and, and through that, we would develop forums for advancing that policy. In terms of implementing our policy, we'd work predominantly with uh, the Department of Agriculture, who regulates our industry. Um, so we're regularly talking to them about um, what, what changes we, we see needed or, um, you know, in tweaks here and there or nuances. But And then, of course, we also play a political advocacy role. So it's our job to walk up to Parliament House and speak to MPs um, about the industry and advocate our position. And uh, we've been very fortunate over uh, the last little while to have a very positive relationship with Minister Littleproud, um, with uh, Shadow Minister Fitzgibbon and now Shadow Minister Husick. So it, it's been, uh, it, it, it's a, we've been very fortunate that those positive relationships have uh, occurred, but uh, that's one of the things that's really important to getting that done. We need those relationships and that's, that's also a big part of our role. And I was going to, this leads quite nicely into this because we are here because of Beef 21 and it's not far away. And I guess a lot of your time will be spent sort of network, networking, I um, I would imagine. But what are your big priorities for that event? To be there. I've, <laughs> I've been to Beef Week before. It's a, it's a fantastic week. I think it's just a, a, an excellent uh, advertisement for, for rural Australia. But what I'll be doing there is to, to talk to producers about the industry because often when we talk about uh, having transparency or communicating what we do, people make a big assumption that we're only talking outwards, um, when I say outwards, to the broader community. But I think we we do have a really strong 
our responsibility to make sure we're keeping producers informed about what we're doing. So I want to talk to them, uh, make sure they understand how the industry works, answer any questions, um, and just basically uh, get amongst it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's basically what everyone's there for, really. Um, what are your favourite, like, obviously networking and, and speaking to people that are being part of it, but there's so many different facets to the beef event. What are some of your favourites? Uh, well, I actually find the, uh, the networking event, uh, events the, the most beneficial because uh, what you see is obviously people congregate and they, and they haven't seen each other for a long time or, or, or either that, there's people that um, all in the one place that you wouldn't necessarily get them there. So it's a huge opportunity and a lot of work's done. Um, so it, that's the bit I really enjoy. We're, we're looking to have a presence in one of the trade stands so people will be available to come and talk to us. Um, and there's also a forum uh, that, that we're planning to do that I'll be speaking at. So oh, great. I'm uh, very much looking forward to doing that. Yeah, and details to come. Exactly. <laughs> With so much. Uh, Mark, we've, I've asked everybody who's been a, a guest on this podcast uh, what their favourite cut of beef is because, you know, we are here to highlight this amazing commodity that we have. Um, but I don't want fancy dinner party um Jargon, I just want what you're going to cook on an average Monday night and what you're going to get from the butcher. Uh, my go-to is a scotch fillet, mm-hmm. uh, cooked on a very hot barbecue, red, uh, with a salad um, and, and maybe some mustard. Uh, keep it simple. Enjoy the, uh, the quality of the beef and make sure it's good quality when you get it. And um, that, That's a perfect meal to me. Yeah, that actually does sound perfect, and I, I really like the mustard. Actually, that's that's all we ever have with steak as well. I have to admit. Thank you so much for your time today, Mark. I've really enjoyed the chat, and we'll see you at Beef Twenty One. I can't wait, Jane, and uh, look forward to seeing you all there. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners. Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.